pray together. Our Father and our God, how we thank you for the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you, we honor you, we adore you, we have gathered, Lord, to worship you and to um, invite you to instill in our hearts a passionate vision of Christ that will sustain us and help us. We are unable in our own strength to negotiate any of the things that you call us to do. But in the strength of Christ, Father, we know that we are more than conquerors through him, through Christ, who has won our salvation for us. So this morning, as we turn our attention to your word, O oh Lord, I pray that you would help us to take in all that you have for us today, that it might strengthen us for the journey. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. So you left here last Sunday saying, Lord, I'm excited about, about growing in the knowledge of Christ. I'm excited about bearing fruit. I, 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 I want to be able to be strengthened that I might endure and, and, and oh Lord, help me be joyfully thankful in whatever comes my way. And then life got in the way. This week got in the way. Some people got in the way. If we're honest with ourselves, and certainly the Lord knows, we have a daily battle, a daily battle in our lives to fight against our emotions, which are so powerful in our lives, so powerfully drive our lives. And the onslaught of opposition knows full well who we are and how we are made. So we battle the the situation of bad news, whether it's health or finances or career or whatever it might be, the future. We worry about the um, intentional attacks by the enemy on our soul. We are emotionally gripped by that. We're emotionally affected by slick-sounding arguments that try to steal away our thinking about the things of God. Paul will talk about that later to, in his letter to Colossians. And then there's just the sheer weight of being outnumbered in what we believe in everybody around us. We're in a decided minority. And so our feelings threaten every day to unloosen us from our faith, from what we believe. Our feelings threaten to, to take over our lives and define us. And... and Today we're living in a culture, today we're living in a, in a country whereby the lawmakers are enshrining emotions and feelings in the law of the land, as opposed to truth. And the truth of the matter is feelings are what fear eats for lunch. Every day, the entities of supernatural power, which this letter calls rulers and authorities, are lined up against us. But what our feelings, our fear can't eat is our faith. And it seems to me as if, if Paul, as he was writing, introducing this letter with these great uh, designs for uh, the lives of God's people. It seems as if the Holy Spirit arrested his thinking and he said, I can't go any further without giving some sort of glorious presentation of Christ because they will surely not be able to operate in what I'm calling them to, this fledgling church, brand new believers, if they are not gripped by a fresh and powerful vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that these verses, 15 to 20, are, are somewhat an insertion, an interruption, because the flow of the text, when you, when you leave verse 12 and 13, moves nicely into verse 21, and 15 and 20, although they fit, are, in, are definitely inserted in Paul's thinking. 
the, um, the people he was writing to were surrounded by two main factions. The old tradition of, of Judaism that had all but lost all of its vestiges of the reality of God. And the supernatural gods, the locus of demonic activity of the Greek and Roman polytheistic gods. And so they had these competing forces around them. A, a religion that was impotent of God and multiple gods that the culture around them were paying homage to. Not so dissimilar to how we are living today. If you think about it, the main reality of all the religions around us are godless. And the rest of society is steeped in idolatry. The multiple gods of the material world. So here they are in this particular situation, the same situation where this is the backdrop of where the Apostle Paul delivers this spectacular, perhaps the most spectacular, concentrated vision of Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. As I was talking to Pastor Jamie just before the service this morning, I said, this, this is one of these texts that the pastor or the preacher just wants to get out of the way and make sure that the glory of Christ is all that you see. And so that's my prayer this morning, is that, is that God would take me out of the way and make sure that you are able to see the glories of Christ in this text. Because if Jesus is who is presented here, if Jesus is who he claims to be and what he is, then what can touch us? Who can hurt us? What can harm us? Who can get in the way of us? If Jesus is who he says, what can shake our faith? What can steal away our confidence? What can take away our security in, in the Lord Jesus Christ? So I must take, on a daily and almost moment-by-moment -moment basis, my feelings, my emotions, to the subject and object of my faith. Can I encourage you, beloved, to do this, to, to, to run to a, this text, to run here. Take your feelings, take your emotions that are, that are warring against everything the Lord wants for you and take it to this kind of a text, the object and subject of your faith, and allow the glories of Jesus Christ to reset your reality. Because that's what this text is intended to do. Now we all know that the Apostle Paul was an Old Testament scholar. And so, we pretty much are certain that he builds the case of the structure of what he wants to present about Jesus Christ here from the Psalms. In particular, Psalm 89, 27, which is a prophetic psalm speaking of the everlasting kingdom of David. And in that particular psalm, in verse 27, the, the Lord, God, says, I will also make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And to understand the structure of this Christological section of Scripture, you see in the text, twice firstborn is highlighted. That's how we're going to structure it this morning. Is we're going to talk about the firstborn over all creation and the firstborn from among the dead. These are our main headings. That's how we'll understand that. Echoes of the prophetic description about the, the, the greater king that would follow David. Echoes of Old Testament prophetic descriptions which center our attention and the new church attention, the church of Colossae, on Jesus. And every church that is faithful to its call centers its attention on Jesus Christ as the epicenter of our interest and the epicenter of importance. Now, in Colossae, they were this new group of believers. They were also at the epicenter of moral and creation controversy. All around them was immorality. 
all around them was claims that there were multiple gods with multiple roles and responsibilities. So who's the real God? How did we come to be? Who are we supposed to follow? How is our life supposed to, to act ethically and morally? All, all of these questions were surrounding this brand new church, and they were in the center of the controversy of that as they understood now Jesus Christ and what he had laid out for them. We live in the same controversy today. We stand out against the distinctly different morals of the people around us. We stand out against those who, who wonder about how we came to be and how we got here and all of the controversies that are answered in this very section of Scripture. So let's dive in. It says here that he, referencing back to the son he loves, in other words, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Do not get caught up in the sound of the English word firstborn and lose out on the truth of this theology. Jesus Christ is not created. This firstborn, the understanding of this firstborn is rank and title. It's standing at the front of the line. Now, although this was a predominantly um, Gentile church, there were also Jews in this church. There were, and, and the Apostle Paul, of course, is identifying here a very significant, important reality for Jews. When he talks about Jesus Christ being the firstborn of all creation, or at the front of the line, or there at creation... Remember when Jesus was having a controversy with the Pharisees? Well, it wasn't really much of a controversy because they came to him and challenged him, and it's always a slam dunk when it's Jesus. But Jesus had said to them, Before Abraham was, I am. Do you remember that statement that he made in John chapter 8, verse 58? Before Abraham was, I am. And they looked at him and said, wait a minute, you're not yet 50 years old. Now, Jesus wasn't even much beyond 30 years old. You're not even 50 years old. How can you say before Abraham was, I am? Paul's clarifying for us how that is Literally, he could have said to them, not only before Abraham was, I am, but before all of creation was, I am. He is the firstborn over the title and the rank. He is the image, not an image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. No doubt, the Apostle Paul, of course, living in this context in Asia Minor, filled with statues of the idols of the gods of the age, that they were constantly seen around them. No doubt as he looked at them, he was, and the images of these gods, it wasn't dissimilar to the time he was in Athens when in Acts 17 he was walking around noting all of these statues to the gods, and he said, I... Perceive that you are a religious people because I see all the gods around you, but I also see that you have a, a uh, presentation here to the invisible God, the unknown God. It is that God that I want to present to you. And so here he delivers to the Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the only God that exists. Now, the Jews, and knowing full well their Old Testament and the commandments of the Old Testament were to make no images of what is on earth beneath. 
Paul points out that this one, Jesus Christ, is no image of the created entities beneath. This Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus the Christ is the physical disclosure of the invisible God. If you put flesh on God, you get Jesus. The man who walked among us, Paul is saying, the man who was executed on a Roman cross, is God, is the only God and creator of everything. To the Gentile, makers of images and idols, exchanging the glory of God for corruptible likenesses, he is the image of the real God. When, he, when Jesus turned to his disciples in Caesarea Philippi and said, who do people say that I am? And they gave a variety of different statements of what people were saying. And Peter, remember, stood forward and said, you are the Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Matthew 16, 16. That's why we've entitled our series, Christ, God, Visible. He is God visible. When Jesus was introducing to his disciples that he soon was going to be leaving them in John 14. He said to them, believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms and I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come back and get you that where I am, there you might be also. He said, if it were not so, I would have told you. So Philip said to him, and probably regretted after he said it, well, we don't know where you're going, and, and sh show us the Father. Show us the Father. And Jesus said to him, Philip, have I been with you so long that you ask me to show you the Father? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. What Jesus said, God said. What Jesus thought, God thought. What Jesus did, God did. There, there are a number of people who are wandering around saying, well, I'm, I'm basing my, the limits of my moral life on the statements that Jesus made himself the, in some of your Bibles that are in red letters. Beloved, we need to understand that what God has said, Jesus has said. That all of the word of God is the word of Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God. That's why Paul, writing to Timothy, said, All scripture is God-breathed. And of course, at that time, he's referring to the Old Testament scriptures, all scripture is God-breathed. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and therefore the word of God is the word of Christ. I saw an, a, an alarming piece of research in researching this text. Produced by Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research. And I'm suspecting you'll be shocked to hear this. But the, the statement was put forward, Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. Okay, This statement was put forward to evangelicals in a survey. Like us. Evangelical Christians. Like us. The question was put forward, agree or disagree. Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. 43% of evangelicals agreed with that statement. That Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. Now, evangelical Christianity is the best we have to offer the world, right? That's, that's like taking almost half of all of you today 
and saying that you came in this room this morning and believe that Jesus is a great teacher, but not God. Paul further says, not only is he the, invis- in, in the image of the invisible God, and not only was he there at the beginning, but he is the creator of everything. The creator of everything. You see what it says here? For by him, and that could be probably better translated because there's a by him later. For in him all things were created. Verse 16, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. Yes, that means angels and demons. All things were created by him and for him. He is the creator of everything. Think about that for a moment. He There is nothing that exists that Jesus didn't create, that Christ did not create, the Son of God did not create. Nothing, therefore, poses a real threat to you. If you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, everything has been created by him. Creation is the handiwork of Jesus the Christ and is entirely subject to him. Everything's created in him, by him, for him. It's such a sweeping statement. Any evolutionary hypothesis falls flat in the face of the biblical description of Christ, the Son of God. Every design reorientation of his creation is an affront to the living Christ. He made everything in him. He is the source of all of creation. Not only did Paul say that, but assuming Paul didn't write Hebrews, whoever wrote the book of Hebrews says this, but in these last days, he has spoken to us, in other words, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. In him, by him, for him, God has no other agent, not wisdom or law. You can only get right with God through Christ. Now think about this. We as believers, understanding that the Son of God is God's agent of creation, we understand that it is our responsibility to be stewards of the creation that God has given to us. He has given us that responsibility as vice regents of his world. But beloved, we are also to be stewards of of his design. In terms of the modern reality in which we live, we are not to become apathetic or dispassionate about those in our world who are seeking to redefine and redesign God's creation design. That means I'm to be as appalled by those who would tamper with gender issues as I am with a murderer or a thief or a liar or anyone else who breaks the design and desire of God. We are stewards of the planet that we live on and must prevent the pollution of human design as well. He's the creator of everything. He is also before all things. In case there's some ambiguity to the idea of firstborn, 
Paul clarifies it very quickly here by saying, before anything that you can see around you, the Son of God existed. The eternal reality of the Son of God. Eternal existence. He's the first cause of all things. Not only that, he holds all things together. In him, all things hold together. He's a sustainer, keeping creation itself together. We, listen carefully, we don't have to save the cosmos. So you can take that burden off yourself. The, the maker of heaven and earth himself has commissioned himself to be the sustainer of all that he has made. Keeping it all together, holding it all together. He keeps everything from coming unglued. It is important for us to understand that the theology called deism, whereby God created and then just left the world to its own devices, you work it out on your own, is not true theology. This statement itself says, no, God is very, very involved in his creation. Our God continues to hold all things together. They, they were living among a confused reality of polytheism, of all kinds of different gods with different roles, the, the God of the ocean, the God of the weather, the God of this, the God of that. Who's in charge? Who's coordinating all of this? Who's keeping this all working out? They were, they were as confused then as we are today. Our culture worships the God of science and all of its varied disciplines. There's the disciplines of those who take care of climate. There's the disciplines of those who take care of health care. There's the discipline of those who take care of, of the animal kingdom, and on and on it goes. Our scriptures tell us that the Son of God sustains all of those things. He, he is the one. He controls, as, as an old-time old writer, in 1898, H.G. Moole says, he controls the cosmos and keeps it from becoming chaos by the way he doesn't just hold some sort of mess together as another writer puts it he is the rationale the rhyme and the reason he is the operating system behind all operating systems do you have any idea how fast our earth is rotating right now do, we have any, do you have any idea how rapidly it is orbiting? We are in fast speed. And here we have oceans that stay in their place. Try and run with a bowl of water and see how well you do at slow speed. We're spinning at rapid speed, moving an orbit at the same time. It makes you dizzy just thinking about it. And we hear our sensation as we sit here still. God sustaining Christ, the Son of God, sustaining all things, keeping things glued together, holding it all together by his majesty. So he's the firstborn over all creation. He's the firstborn over all life. He's the giver of life. And now we are thrust into the second reality, the second major reality, the major structural reality. He's the firstborn from among the dead. The stark contrast of being the firstborn over all of life, the, the essence of life, the giver of life, but he's also the firstborn among the dead. Nothing could be more at the opposite pole of life than death. To give us a sense of the grand supremacy of Jesus Christ. He is the firstborn 
in the most foreign realm of the life giver, Christ, firstborn from among the dead, the condescension of Almighty God coming to earth to live among us. But more than that, to experience death for us is almost impossible to comprehend. And so the apostle Paul writing this balances it out for us. The opposite extreme for this supreme commander of the cosmos is to leave heaven and come to earth to die for us. Because those he's writing to are saying, wait a second, you're, you're talking to us about this grand vision of the Son of God. Paul, are you, are you still talking about, about that one we heard of in, in Jerusalem called Jesus, who, who we heard taught and ministered and was martyred on a cross, and, and rumor has it that he rose again, and of course, is this who you're talking about, that one? So Paul says to them, oh, so you know about um, all the dying and the people around you and the paranoia around death. Well, let me tell you about this Jesus. He is the firstborn from among the dead. He is supreme over even death. From out of creation, his creation, Jesus Christ is calling forth a new creation, which is what you and I are if you know Christ as your Lord and Savior. The creator himself who has created all is calling out of his creation a new creation, which is called the church. And the head of the church, the firstborn, this is referencing priority and rank. Everywhere that firstborn is used in the New Testament singular form, like it is here, it always references Jesus Christ. You can find it in Romans 8, 29, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Acts 26, 23, Revelation 1, 5. Whenever firstborn is stated, it is referencing Jesus Christ and his supremacy in terms of priority or rank. Because many of you will say, wait, wait a second, Jesus wasn't the only one who rose from the dead. What about Lazarus? Everyone else who rose from the dead was resuscitated to die again. Jesus Christ was the firstborn of resurrection, the prototype, the one who conquered death, and he is the head of the church. See what it says here? He is the head of the body, head of the church. He's the only connection that we have to the living God. Now, any one of us can walk out of this church this morning, and the rest of us will remain connected to God. But if Jesus Christ were to leave us, we have no other connection to God. He is the head of the church. We exist to serve him. The church does not exist to reach the lost. Pastor Chris will be gasping right now. The church does not exist to meet needs. The church does not exist to take over this country. The church does not exist to protect our particular brand of Christianity. The church does not exist to, to protect this local expression of Christ. The church does not exist to be sensitive to the secular. The church exists to honor its head, the Lord Jesus Christ, to bring glory to him, and in so doing, of course, Christ himself commands us to meet the needs of those who need. Christ himself commands us to reach the lost. Christ himself commands us 
to be concerned about the things around us. But the churches, and, and by gazing at this vision, we must embrace this. The church exists for the glory of Christ. This is set at the very front. He is the head of the body. He is the head of the church. Everything we do is, is to bring him honor and him glory. I exist, you exist to bring glory to Christ. We were made in him, by him, for him. West Highland Baptist Church exists for Jesus Christ and him alone. He is the supreme reality to bear fruit, to grow, to fill the earth with God's glory. And having stated that, it's almost necessary for him to say, so that in everything, the end of verse 18, he might have the supremacy. It, it, for us, it's always, oh, wait a second, wait about, what about Jesus? Well, we should do this. Wait a minute, so what about Jesus? Well, I need to make this decision. Wait, wait a second, what about Jesus? We, we all should be doing this. Wait a second. What about Jesus? Well, I feel this way. Wait, what about Jesus? Well, I, I'm thinking about, the, wait a minute, what about Jesus? Do you see the words in everything? In everything. Every moment of your day, every decision you make, every thought you have about the future, every challenge to your emotional state in everything, he is supreme. Jesus Christ is to have the supremacy. He is supreme over the cosmos. He is the only reality that is entirely sufficient in and of himself. There's no alternative hope in this world, regardless of how hopeless your situation may seem at the moment. Jesus was preaching some hard stuff in John chapter 6. And it says in the text there, many disciples were leaving him. That's the discussion for another time. Jesus turns to his close disciples and says to them, are you going to leave too? That, that, that's a, a very contemporary moment, really, for all of us, day in and day out. Horrible news hits you. Or a long, long session of struggle and pain and opposition, or whatever you might be facing. And there is that moment emotionally to say, maybe I should just cut bait and leave. Maybe, maybe God isn't really going to help me. Or, or maybe what he's asking of me is just too hard. And I'm going to run away from it. And one of the disciples said to him, where else would we go? And he follows up the phrase with, because you have the words of life. Where else would we go for that would be sufficient? for your need. Where, where else would you go that would be sufficient for your needs? Jesus is the firstborn from the dead as well. C.S. Lewis in a shortened quote said, only someone divinely supreme can forgive sins and only someone human can die 
fully God, fully man. The mystery of the indwelling spirit, which enables us to somehow grasp a little bit of how we are indwelt by the spirit of God. But as Lewis rightly puts it, in a very minor key. Although Jesus was rightful Lord of creation and life, there was one untamed obstacle that existed, and that is the death of his creation. And that is the last enemy of man, the thing we fear. By becoming the firstborn among the dead, being resurrected to life, Jesus Christ has conquered the ultimate obstacle in this cosmos. And so he is supreme over all things, over life and over death. There is nothing more supreme than that. He is supreme over everything. It says the fullness of God. For God was pleased to have all of the fullness dwell in him. Do we understand even a grasp a tiny bit of this? In Christ, the full essence of God is able to be seen. Christ is the complete embodiment of God. I wrote in my margin of my Bible, this fullness is complete totality. There is no extra God essence beyond Christ. God has chosen to completely and permanently dwell in Christ. Christ is the place of the fullness of God. All there is of God is in Christ. So those who suggest that they can have God without Christ is impossible. It's impossible based on what is written to us here in God's word. We may reflect the glory of God, but Christ is the glory of God. Now one of the thorny questions that come, comes up if God, if Christ is so dominant and so supreme over all things and creator of all things, why in the world did he create Satan? Why, why in the world did, did Jesus in his creation create a world capable of rebelling and falling? Why? It's found in, it's, it's, the answer is found in this description of Christ. That he is the fullness of all God is. Now think about this for a moment. Maybe you'll, stew, maybe you'll stew on it for the rest of the week. The purpose of creation, including fallenness of that creation, was to put the fullness of God on display. The fullness of all that God is. On display. That means putting on display his wrath, his grace, his mercy, his compassion, his power to defeat sin, and his power over death. In the absence of a fallen world, the attributes of God of wrath, defeating sin, defeating death, would never have been put on display. The creation itself is made the way it is, in him, by him, for him, meaning for his purposes, that the fullness of God might be put on display. He is the fullness of God. And finally, He's the reconciler of all things for and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now we must hastily point out that this is not a statement of universalism. 
but rather a statement of God's total dominance over all that has been created so that he will bring this warring faction and rebellious world toward God finally to a peaceful solution. And that peaceful solution is Christ's death on the cross that we might have peace with God. And those who refuse to have peace with God will be put away forever. That from that point forward, the cosmos itself will live at peace with God. So when we understand the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ, and we look around ourselves at all of the religious trappings and things, the trinkets and bells and whistles and sideshows are all patently unnecessary and frankly a distraction. Because Christ alone is God's plan of reconciling a creation alienated from its creator. So quite simply, wherever two or three are gathered, you know, there is Christ. In the poorest of settings, without the bells and the whistles and the trinkets and all the things, there is Christ. There's no way to interpret life or meaning or purpose if you bypass Christ. God in Christ places his glory on display through the reconciling and redeeming of a lost world, a fallen creation, so that the creation itself can worship, enjoy, and glorify him forever. There's no other meaning to life. And all of creation itself awaits the final redemption of this world. So when your feelings threaten to swamp your soul and are taking on water this week or in the weeks to come, can I recommend you turn your eyes on Jesus again? He is the image of the invisible God. He is the head of the church. And I would be remiss if I didn't at least send out this question, have you received peace with God yourself. It would be a, a great tragedy to hear this great description of our great Savior and Lord and not present to you the offer of salvation, to have peace with God, that this Jesus Christ went to the cross to die for you and for me, to take our sins upon him, that we might be able to take his righteousness upon us and be forgiven and saved and have peace with God. The strangest thing John writes in the beginning of his gospel, he was in the world, and although the world was made by him, the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to those he gave the power to become children of God. Even those who believe in his name, who are born of God. Our Father, this morning, we thank you for this grand, grand picture. Um, written in human words that the Holy Spirit was pleased to give us but I suspect because of our great limitations, scratch the mere surface of the supremacy and sufficiency and glory of Christ. But Father, I know that your word does not return to you vain, in, in vain, but accomplishes what you have set for it. And so Father, I pray that our hearts might be stirred powerfully if Jesus is who he is portrayed to be, then whom shall I fear? 
if Jesus is what he is declared to be, then of what should I be afraid? So Father, may my feelings and emotions that are so unreliable and distracting give way to my faith in the truth about Jesus Christ, I pray in his name, amen. Let's be released this morning under the instruction of the psalmist. When he spoke, I think for all of us, at one time or another, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens common to man. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure. And then he said this, till I entered the sanctuary of God. Beloved, the world around us, if we fix our eyes upon it, our own situation, if we focus there, will tear our hearts away from the Lord. The only solution is to gaze at the sanctuary of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, in all of his glory and splendor. He is the supreme, sufficient, glorious Lord and Savior. Fix your eyes on him, the author, perfecter of your faith. Our Father, today we praise you and thank you and Thank you for lifting our hearts and our eyes to gaze at the glories of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, our only Savior and Lord. In his name we pray, amen and amen.